0: Welcome to The Freak Show, fellow freaks.
1: I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the Humboldt Lycanthrope.
0: And I'm Sarah Hartman.
1: And this is...
0: Murder Coaster.
1: Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Today we bring you the mysterious and brutal death of a Vegas showman. A tale about one of the youngest and greatest trapeze artists of all time. A tale of murder, forbidden love, and freight train hopping hobos. The tale of an innocent man who spent decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit. A tale that exposes the underlying rot just below the surface of the American justice system. From the dusty midways in the big top tents of the greatest show on earth to the lights and glamour of the Las Vegas Strip. From human cannonballs to the world's most famous dog act. We bring you the life and death of Poodle King, Gerard Soles.
0: Born in Livonia, Michigan in the 1940s, Gerard Jerry Souls longed for the circus his entire life. His sister, Colleen, remembers that at just five years old, he had attempted to run away from home for the lights and glamour of the big top, packing a bag and telling his mother that he was off to a life of adventure and whimsy in the circus. Gerard was back in less than two hours, but that calling never went away.
1: Gerard's father was a home movie enthusiast, filming the usual family outings with his Super 8. And one year, he brought the family to a traveling circus, filming the spectacle. Later, little Gerard would watch that footage over and over again, spellbound. He was especially entranced by the trapeze artist, Betty Ruth, who was considered one of the best aerial performers in the world. Betty would do the usual stunts, swinging back and forth 20 feet in the air. But then she released her grip, somersault up and over the bar, catching herself by the heels as she plummeted down a death-defying feat.
0: Little Gerard was so obsessed with this act that his father went and built him a trapeze in the family garden. And Gerard, he was a natural, the 10-year-old asking, is this like Betty? As he flipped and flung on the bar. Soon, he was doing shows for polio patients at the local hospital recruiting his sister as his assistant and adding juggling and plate spinning to his trapeze act.
1: At just 14 years old, his trapeze act won first place in the Candy Carnival television show, and he was recruited by the Christianus Clyde Betty Cole Circus.
0: Gerard quickly gained quite the reputation as a trapeze artist. He was driven He was fearless, but he was also a perfectionist, telling his colleagues, be brave, but never reckless. He was also boldly flamboyant, donning a flashy cape for his dramatic entrances and exits. Circus promoter Ronnie Smart recalls he made the audience feel like they'd been granted an audience with the Pope. We used to say to people, oh, Jerry's great. And if you don't believe it, just ask him.
1: (laughs) And by the early 1960s, Gerard was performing across the United States and Europe with Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth.
0: He was billed as the youngest aerialist in the world. And promotional material for the time read, by his supreme artistry, he soars to new heights of aerial audacity.
1: Aerial audacity. I love it. He was a showstopper. Bare-chested and sparkling leotards, souls would perform stunts no other trapeze artist dared to do. In perfect time with the blaring circus music, Sixty feet in the air. Gerard would fall on the back swing, appearing to have no hope, only to perform a forward heel catch from the knee at the last moment. No other performer would try it. Oh, they'd do it on the front swing when they could clearly see the trapeze bar, but not on the back swing when you had to rely purely on instinct.
0: And get this: Souls never used a safety net. Well, besides in New York City, where the law demanded it. But even then, he'd only have a couple of assistants below, holding a net in their hands.
1: Yep, the entire point of the act was how death-defying it was. And as they said in the circus, you either caught the bar or you caught the concrete.
0: Kenny Dodd, a former circus clown and friend of Souls, said Jerry was very aware of how dangerous it was and told him he was frightened at times and Jerry knew he couldn't go on doing it for the rest of his life.
1: And sure enough, one day in 1964, Jerry just up and quit. He called it his Crassie des neufs or crisis of the nerves, explaining that when he was up on that trapeze bar, all he could see Was the cold ground below?
0: The circus explained his retirement as stemming from a bad fall, which wasn't true. He was just done risking his life every night, especially after a near catastrophe in Belgium.
1: But there had, in fact, been a bad fall many, many years earlier when he'd broken his back and been laid up in the hospital. And it was there that a friend brought him a puppy. He told that friend, (laughs) everyone loves a puppy. He told that friend, I've always wanted to have a dog act, but I won't be cruel and teach them jumping tricks. I'll do something special. And as we'll see, that's exactly what he later did.
0: But dogs weren't his first choice. His first choice was puppets, (laughs) but that didn't work out.
1: Yes, from the greatest trapeze artist in the world, performing 60 feet in the air without a net, to puppets. Puppets. No, didn't work. Then he uh, tried his hand at the old plate spinning tricks from his youth. But uh, this was a real low-paying, bottom-of-the-rung sideshow gig, and he soon gave it up. I I think I'd rather see puppets than plate spinning.
0: Yeah, same. Same? Puppets. (laughs) Yeah, puppets are are more, I don't know, comedic.
1: We're dramatic people, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
1: His uh, next idea was being shot out of a cannon in the Human Cannonball Act.
0: And Gerard had sold his trapeze bar and capes to a young man named Elvin Bale, who did a Human Cannonball Act, which sparked his interest. But one night in Hong Kong, Elvin overshot the landing pad by 10 feet and came crashing down on the concrete, shattering his vertebrae and forcing him to walk with leg braces. Yowza. Yeah, ouch. This mishap convinced Gerard not to pursue being a human cannonball. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's logical. <laughs> and so instead, he started his world famous dog act.
1: Yay, the dog act.
0: Poppy song. <laughs> Dogs have been part of the American circus from the beginning. In the 1850s, Victorian circuses, dogs were pitted against humans in leaping contests to see who could become champion vaulter of the world. Dogs were also common companions to clowns, being easy to train and not nearly as dangerous as a lion or a tiger. In the 1930s, a dog named Stout's Pal Pierre was world famous for walking the tightrope at Barnum and Bailey Circus.
1: On a side note, I caught a fabulous dog act once when Bob Moore's American Mongrels opened up for none other than the Beastie Boys in San Francisco. And let me tell you, it was hilarious and like crazy chaotic. So much fun. It It was quite the act. He had like this huge pack of dogs running around the stage and in between jumping through hoops and walking on a tightrope, they'd be stealing his hat and jumping up on him from behind. Fun stuff.
0: Man, I wish I could have seen that. That sounds awesome. And that act actually has a lot of history to it as well. Moore's Mongrels was a circus and vaudeville act started in 1930s, and it was started by four brothers. When World War II broke out, the one brother, Sonny Moore, was assigned to the Army Canine Corps and ended up in jungle warfare in the Philippines with a dog named Captain. They bonded hard during this time. After the war, Captain was returned to his owner, who had volunteered his services. But the owner could see the dog pine to be with his buddy Sonny, and so gave him to Sonny, who made him a star of his dog act, performing on the Ed Sullivan Show and even before Queen Elizabeth at a Royal Command performance in London. Captain died in 1956, but the dog show went on under Sonny's brother Dwight, where they worked at Disneyland, Walt calling them his favorite dog act, and performed at Bing Cosby's Hollywood Palace show
1: yep and the show was eventually taken over by Dwight's son Bob who like our protagonist Jerry performed in Vegas Bob also received an award from Priscilla Presley for saving dogs from an animal shelter they not only toured with the Beastie Boys as I mentioned but also performed with Dolly Parton everyone loves Dolly Mm mm-hmm And had his act featured on season two of America's Got Talent, but got eliminated in the audition round, which is bullshit. They should have won. (laughs) Sorry. I I love a dog act. Passionate. Yes. (laughs) And in researching all this, I discovered there's a circus dog school in San Francisco. And they will train you and your pets to perform in carnivals and circuses. So I might just take off one day to go to this dog circus school with my great Pyrenees, Daphne, and my little mini Australian shepherd pretzel. Just waiting for that next midlife crisis to come around. Should be any day.
0: (laughs) Well, I wish you and your dogs an awesome career. Well, thank you very much. But you better come back to this podcast every week.
1: I could podcast from San Francisco.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Put the dogs on there too. Yeah. Okay. And now, back to Gerard Souls. It took Jerry a year to piece together his dog act. Souls loved musicals and came to realize that audiences wanted glamour even more than danger. And from there, he got the idea to put the dogs in fancy dresses that he sewed himself. And then he set the show to music, choreographed the poodles, and the act was ready.
1: Les Poodles de Paris was an instant hit and became a worldwide attraction and one of the most successful circus acts of all time. A dozen poodles up on their hind legs in feather boas and hats dressed in sequined costumes parading around as Carmen Miranda, Mae West and Marilyn Monroe.
0: Once seen, never forgotten. The ringmaster would shout as the dogs performed in French gowns, hula skirts, and sombreros, dancing to Thank Heaven for Little Girls and The Mexican Hat Dance. In one part of the act, a poodle dressed as a nervous groom stood at an altar, while another, the bride, waltzed up the aisle to join him to the accompaniment of the wedding march all leading to the grand finale where all 12 dogs high-kicked their way around the ring to the can-can.
1: They even appeared on ice, with Gerard flamboyantly ice skating around them and swooping in to pick them up. Ice skating juggler Dave Coussans said it was a complete showstopper when he performed at the Ice Capades. Souls performed his dog show at Radio City Music Hall all the big ice shows and most of the famous cruises working 50 weeks a year over twice as long as most circus acts. His show was a success, but soon a great personal tragedy would befall him.
0: Gerard was never shy about his homosexuality. If you haven't guessed yet from the capes and the sequins, the musical numbers and the poodles, yes, Gerard was gay. Gay proud and unapologetically himself
1: as he should be once during his trapeze days at Ringling Brothers Circus, a man accused another man of having an affair with his wife and shot the man. Gerard famously said, I don't know what he was so head up about because that guy was playing around with me at the time.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> so good.
0: But Gerard was a loyal and faithful lover. And there was only one great love in his life, an airline worker named Steve Schumacher. During the 70s and into the late 80s, the two were inseparable. But over a decade of loving times and commitment, Schumacher developed a kidney disorder and tragically died, Gerard sticking by his side through it all.
1: Friends say Gerard never got over it and remarked that the love between Gerard and Steve was one of the most devoted they'd ever seen.
0: In a terrible act of bigotry, Steve's family had disowned him for his homosexuality. And before his final operation, Steve told Gerard, if anything happens to me, I don't want to go back to Memphis. Don't let my family take me. They didn't want me in life, and I don't want to be there in death.
1: But the family got the body, and they buried him in Memphis, warning souls to not attend the funeral. Undeterred, souls put on a two-year legal battle and eventually succeeded in bringing the body of his soulmate and lover back to Michigan. There was a huge service, and he bought a headstone that read, Welcome home, Steve. We made it. See you soon.
0: Oh, my God. That's so sweet. Mm. I'm glad our listeners can't see me. um, That (laughs) kind of makes me want to tear up. Me too. Oh, my gosh. And that's why gay marriage is so important, uh, so that someone's life partner can have those same legal rights when it comes to their loved one, as afforded by marriage, regardless of whether they're the same sex or not. If Gerard and Steve had actually been able to get married, there wouldn't have been that two-year-long legal battle. Yeah. And in
1: January of 1992, Gerard Soul signed up for a six-month stint oh. in Circus, Circus, Las Vegas, baby. Woo! Bright light city, gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Viva Las Vegas. <laughs>
0: Opened in 1968, Circus Circus is a huge hotel and casino conceived during that magical period of time when Las Vegas entrepreneurs were obsessed with theming all of their attractions.
1: Complete with a big top design, Circus Circus Casino features a multitude of circus acts performing around a cavernous main room, aerialists and trapeze acts, soaring over the heads of the gamblers, gorgeous showgirls dancing and singing.
0: And of course, starting in 1992, Circus Circus also had a handsome dog trainer by the name of Gerard Jerry Souls, who could be seen there six nights a week with his 14 poodles.
1: When you show up to Circus Circus, you're greeted immediately by Lucky the Clown, who has been a fixture of the building's facade since 1976. He's a 123 foot tall neon clown. Can't miss him. His massive grin greets visitors of the strip. Beckoning would be gamblers to enter the big top and taking a show. Circus Circus was always a wacky place. It's even supposedly haunted, depending on who you ask. In the 70s, You could have a couple of drinks on the midway, then throw your tipsy ass down a literal slide to arrive on the gaming floor. When the casino opened its first hotel tower in 1972, the tower was built with a loan from the mob. and infamous mobster, Tony Spilotero ended up owner-operator of the Circus Circus gift
0: shop. Don't forget about the appearance of Circus Circus in Hunter S. Thompson's beloved book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, wherein he writes, quote, Nobody can handle the possibility that any freak with a $1.98 can walk into the circus circus and suddenly appear in the sky over downtown Las Vegas, 12 times the size of God, howling anything that comes into his head. No, this is not a good town for psychedelic drugs.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay. Glad you mentioned that, Sarah. Silly as it may seem, that book actually changed my life. I wanted to discover myself how Hunter did the strange, the ugly, obscene parts of America, the weird underbelly of the American dream. And in that crazy gonzo journalism manner where you become a part of the story and everything goes off the rails. Kind of like how Kerouac would work the fields with migrant workers or do morphine with sex workers in Mexico. Not only injecting himself into the story he's telling, but becoming one with it. When Hunter wrote about the Hells Angels, he lived it and eventually got his ass kicked by them, which just comes with the territory. And when he covered Ken Kesey and the acid tests, he drank the Kool-Aid. You know, the first tattoo I ever got was the Gonzo dagger with the six-fingered fist grabbing the peyote button and the only regret i've ever had about that tattoo is i didn't get it bigger as hunter used to say freak power
0: if you're gonna regret a tattoo that's a really good reason why wish was bigger hell yeah yeah uh but circus circus doesn't actually appear in the movie adaptation of fear and loathing in las vegas No part of it was actually shot there. I did go and check. And I myself have never been to Las Vegas, not yet. So I've had to rely on movie cameos to experience the vibe. But you've been there, right?
1: Oh, yeah. But uh, not in a long while. I was there back before they cleaned it all up and made it kid friendly. I hear it's a different place now. In the 90s, I used to go there and see the Grateful Dead. And we'd always pile on the Circus Circus. Man, we take that place over. Mostly because it was really cheap, but also because it was kind of sleazy and they didn't really care that there was all these dirty, dreadlocked hippies high on acid, wandering around. Some of the ritzier casinos, they could be uptight. But I have to disagree with Hunter a little bit about Las Vegas not being a good town for psychedelic drugs. If you can keep your shit together, Vegas... And in particular, Circus Circus can be a pretty fun place on psychedelics, I can tell
0: you. That's nuts. <laughs> One spring day, Jerry encountered Fred Steeves along the side of the road. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed, attractive young man. Fred Steeves was holding a sign reading, We'll work for food. Decent and
1: souls could not have come from more different upbringings. In contrast to soul's warm and loving childhood, Steese had been abandoned by his mother at the age of 10. He had gone through over 37 foster home placements until he finally struck out on his own as a teenager to live the life of a transient. Steese, he was a straight up hobo, traveling from place to place by hopping freight trains, picking up work where he could get it, staying in hobo camps as he went along, living by the rules of the road.
0: Jerry picked up Fred along the side of the road and treated him to a hot meal at a local diner. The two really hit it off, and Jerry hired Fred to be the assistant in his act. Great timing, since Jerry had actually fired his last assistant, Alexander Kolepev? Am I saying it that right? Sounds good to me. We'll we'll go with it. He was a balding Russian man with short red hair, and um, he had been fired after the two went through some sort of drama or another.
1: The former trapeze artist, looking for someone to help with his circus dog act, picks up a down on his luck hobo riding the rails. This feels so much like a noir story from the '30s, totally Nightmare Alley, but um. This is the 90s, just like the Grace, Gary Grady Style Jr. case we covered.
0: Yeah, it does feel a lot like a 30s noir film. And like any good noir film, it's going to take a turn. A turn towards murder. Uh-oh. Don't worry, it's coming. Jerry and Steez really hit it off and soon become more than boss and worker. The two men become lovers.
1: During his years on the road, Stees had made a lot of friends, one of whom was another gay man, Rick Rock. What a name. Whom Stees had met it is, dude. Rick Rock. He gotta be cool to have a name like that. Real. Whom Stees had met while hitchhiking in Pennsylvania.
0: Rick Rock had enjoyed Stees' company. He bought him a bus ticket and told Fred to call and collect whenever he wanted. And Fred did. He kept up his correspondence with Rick Rock, long-term. Remember this, it'll be important later.
1: When the casino demanded that Steese get a work permit to continue working on Jerry's Circus Dog Act, he knew he was in trouble. Getting that work permit would be out of the question because Steese was wanted for violating parole in Florida. In fact, he'd been going by the alias Fred Burke over the course of his work with Jerry.
0: It's been reported that when Jerry found out about Steece's warrant and his criminal past, he wanted nothing more to do with him and asked him to leave. Though Steece claims he left on his own because there was no sense of staying there if he couldn't make money.
1: Steece hit the streets of Las Vegas, handling the tourist, and begging up just enough cash for a bottle to forget his troubles and a few bindles of heroin and cocaine for good measure. Then, off to the train yard, hopping a freight train, skipping town, speedballing coke and heroin, and drinking as the train roared through the night.
0: Six days later, Jerry Souls was found dead in his trailer.
1: Jerry's boss had come to investigate. After hearing the dogs start to lose their minds, barking in a way he'd never heard them bark before. When he looked in the trailer, he was shocked to see a mattress soaked in blood with a trail of gore leading to the bathroom. And it was there where Gerard Soles, legendary trapeze artist, circus royalty, lay cold and lifeless.
0: He was naked. His throat had been cut. He'd been stabbed over 35 times, the coroner losing count after he hit 35.
1: Red Steese immediately came up as a suspect, and Las Vegas police detectives tracked his whereabouts and were able to reach him by phone, requesting he return to Las Vegas for questioning. And he agreed. Steese willingly talked to the police and set out to Vegas for the interview.
0: We can note that while Fred Steeze was definitely a criminal and that he had run from the law for prior crimes, well, hell, he was running from parole when he showed up to work for Jerry, Fred was still willing to come back and speak to detectives in Nevada once he heard about Jerry's murder, saying,
1: I have never been to know a friend that had gotten killed. So Steese came back to Vegas, but not before drunkenly boarding a train going in the opposite direction, rerouting him to Wisconsin. Oh, shit. So from Wisconsin, Steele realized his error and decided to correct it by, how else? Stealing a semi truck and driving it 30 hours without sleeping and with much chemical assistance all the way back to Nevada. Classic Fred. Oh, that's Steese! What a character.
0: That's impressive in like a train wreck kind of way.
1: I could like see it in his mind, just big old semi truck.
0: (laughs) Right. Once in Nevada, Fred was pulled over and arrested.
1: All roads lead to Rome, I guess. And soon Las Vegas police brought Fred Steese to a tiny interrogation room to complete a questionnaire about the murder. But uh, Fred could barely spell. He even misspelled his own name on the paperwork. Fred had an IQ at the bottom of the normal range, tests showing it to between 70 and 80. He had a GED, but it was one he had earned in prison after being arrested for bank robbery.
0: Classic Fred. Classic. During the five hours of his interrogation, Stees gave very inconsistent testimonies, sometimes changing his whole story completely. He tried to explain that he was in Idaho at the time, quote, I think I was in New Plymouth, Idaho. He vehemently denied killing souls, stating that the two were friends, brain addled from drug use, lack of sleep, and relentless accusations from the cops, who he recalls kept yelling at him to stop lying, Fred Steeves finally broke down at 10 p.m. and signed a confession after giving his sixth version of events.
1: The idea of false confessions are extremely well-documented now with countless cases of people, accused peoples, breaking down under stress and exhaustion and confessing to something that they have not done, as well as mentally challenged peoples being bullied and confused into signing confessions that they didn't understand by overeager detectives. And this case looks like a little bit of both to me, but it was in the early nineties, a time when the idea of confessing to a crime that a person didn't commit just was not understood.
0: And keep in mind, Fred had not slept a wink since leaving Wisconsin. His final answer, was that he had made a last-second drunken decision to rob Jerry Souls, and that Fred would not have committed the murder if Jerry hadn't woken up.
1: Prosecutor William Kephart was eager to get his hands on the case. A more experienced prosecutor had dropped out of the running for it, and Kephart, hungry to further his career, was excited about a death penalty case that came with a pre-made confession. William Kephart, known as Wild Bill around the DA's office, had a reputation for being more enthusiastic and ambitious than actually qualified.
0: But the case would not be an easy win.
1: Kephart was joined by Douglas Herndon, and they were the two prosecutors for this case, while James Erbeck, lawyer and former assistant U.S. attorney, and Nancy Masters had both been appointed to defend Fred Sties. I'll just say, you know, how do you get a a former U.S. assistant, uh, a former assistant U.S. attorney as your uh, public defender? That's, you know, and well, the case wouldn't have gone as it did if, if he didn't have some badass lawyers, you know.
0: Right. I don't understand, like, the process through which any of these professionals are appointed. But I was wondering the same. Anyway, two years later, In January 1995, when Steece's case finally went to trial, his defense team was prepared. They had compiled a detailed alibi and brought to the courtroom 14 witnesses and 10 items of documentary evidence with intent to prove that their client was nowhere near Jerry Souls at the time of the slaying. They continued to insist that Fred was in Idaho, an assertion that Fred himself had made very early on in the interrogation.
1: But not one to be discouraged, prosecutor William Kephart traveled to Idaho with an investigator in an attempt to disprove Sties' alibi. Together, they came up with a new theory after speaking to witnesses there. One witness stated that Fred Stee sometimes went by the name Robert. Yet another witness told Kephart that Fred had a brother named Robert. And indeed, Kephart did find documentation from an Idaho Salvation Army that listed a Fred Burke. Remember, Fred Stee's is alias. And a Robert as well, having received $10 worth of assistance there on June 8th of the year of the murder.
0: And these aliases are such a double-edged sword in this case. Yeah. For Fred. Well, um, we'll see
1: that he used the one just to get an extra 10 bucks because they encouraged him to.
0: Right. Yeah, we'll get back to that. And after some further research, Keppert was able to confirm that Steeze did, in fact, have a look-alike brother named Robert. Who lived in Texas. And so, Keppert came up with a new theory to undermine Fred Stees' alibi. Keppert theorized that Stees was never in Idaho. Fred had remained in Las Vegas, Keppert thought, and there he had committed the murder. Robert, Stees' brother, had been the one in Idaho, and the witnesses who met Fred Stees in Idaho on the day of the murder, had actually met Robert. William Keppert surmised that after committing the murder, Fred Burke, or Fred Stees, had gone immediately to Idaho to meet with his brother, where the two had signed the Salvation Army forms together. And since no one had ever met Robert Stees, Robert Stees could be anyone that the prosecutors imagined him to be.
1: That's that's a hell of a story right there. (laughs) Confusing as it was, Hephart was satisfied that he poked a hole in Fred's alibi.
0: Even still, there were serious conflicts with the prosecution's timeline. And there was no evidence to prove that Robert Steese, Fred's brother with a residence in Texas, had ever been to Idaho except for his name on that Salvation Army form.
1: Plus, Fred Sties' confession, made under duress, was that he had drunkenly robbed Jerry's souls on impulse. If Fred Sties actually set up this huge, elaborate, crazy alibi plan with a lookalike brother, he would have had to plan it at least days in advance.
0: Yeah, and it is complicated. Like, it made my brain hurt trying to, like, Put it together when I first heard about it. Yeah. But the prosecution was determined to obtain a guilty verdict. And they repeatedly told the jury that Fred's alibi was bullshit. Gerard Soul's neighbor, Michael Moore, subsequently identified Stees in court as having been at Soul's trailer the night of the murder, even though Two years ago, at the time the murder was discovered, this Michael Moore had told the police that he'd seen a balding man with short red hair leaving the scene.
1: And that description fits Jerry Souls's previous assistant, Kalupev. Kalupev, whatever his name is, the I Russian like your guy. I
0: pronunciation of it better than you mine. Like
1: it- I'm trying to do a Russian accent. I, I, I don't know. I'm a little <laughs> tired. I can't pull it off. But I mean, that's the description of this Russian guy who was assistant that got fired. And whatever happened to that guy?
0: Well, that assistant guy, it turns out he'd been convicted of jewelry theft a few months after the slaying of Jerry Souls. He'd been deported back to Russia, and he was never investigated any further. It's interesting to note here too. That WXYZ Detroit, an affiliate of the ABC network, published an article in 2017 following an interview with Jerry Sol's sister Kathleen. The article states, and I quote, Kathleen says, the man who actually committed the crime worked with Gerard, but is now outside the U.S., end quote.
1: Yeah. Maybe there's something there, huh?
0: That's what I would have thought, too. But as mentioned, his assistant was never investigated any further. So at this point, we got no choice but to go on with the show.
1: On with the show, as they say. The prosecution did its best to paint Fred Stees as a calculating cold killer, and they really did sell it.
0: The defense maintained that Stees was not in Nevada, at the time of the slaying, and as such, he could not have done it. The defense argued that Fred crumpled and falsely pled guilty after interrogation had worn him down. At the time, he was withdrawing from drugs, he hadn't slept for days, and he was of relatively low intelligence.
1: And it was obvious to the defense that the documentary evidence substantiated Fred's alibi. He very clearly left proof that he had traveled under the name of Fred Burke from May 31st to June 8th. To the defense lawyers, this seemed like it should have been an easy case.
0: Fred Stees also testified that on his journey out of Vegas, he made a stop in Salt Lake City, where he met a man by the name of Ron Boutier in the train yard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. He and Fred went to the Salvation Army where they both signed in on Monday, May 31st. The signatures are there, and one of them is definitely Fred's. It looks exactly the same as his signature on his confession. Fred's new buddy, Ron, invited Fred to his grandparents' house in Idaho and said Fred could stay there until he could get work again. Fred Stees agreed, and the two jumped a train. Ron was in court, and he backed all of this up.
1: Later on, Ron and Fred Stees parted ways after a disagreement. Fred couldn't stay with Ron anymore, so he left the grandparents' house on June 8th and went to the local Salvation Army. This is where Fred Steece says he listed two names, Fred and Robert, on the welfare assistance form. Because, as a Salvation Army employee testified, she would give him double assistance that way, even if he was alone which she states he was. And I mentioned this earlier. They're saying that he was there with his brother, but she said he was all alone and told him if she just wrote down two names, she'd give him double the money.
0: That's super nice of her, by the way.
1: It is, isn't it? It's only 10 bucks.
0: Still. I know. That's a bonus.
1: It is. Hell yeah. It's double your money.
0: Steece's actual brother, Robert, never appeared during the trial. In fact. He hadn't even seen Fred since the two were children together. William Keppert, though, maintained the Robert theory. He called to the stand his investigator, and the investigator accused the witnesses of having lied or misunderstood the situation. Keppert even insinuated that the documentary evidence was forged. And he demonstrated how he could doctor a Salvation Army sign-in sheet himself.
1: Yeah, I don't know why the Salvation Army people would be lying anyway. But, you know, it's said that this guy would go to extreme lengths to get a conviction. Two of his prior murder convictions from just a year before were actually thrown out by the Supreme Court of Nevada for, quote, improper and deliberate comments.
0: But? When he did, the prosecution sowed the seeds of doubt and maintained that only the original confession was to be trusted. After the jury, deliberating for two days, agreed that Fred Stees was guilty.
1: He did escape the get, get death penalty, but he was sentenced to rot in jail with two life sentences and no possibility of parole
0: defense lawyer nancy masters we're gonna call her nancy lemke now because she's gotten married
1: yay congratulations nancy <laughs> good
0: job nancy <laughs> nancy lemke was not happy with this outcome remember rick rock the friend fred Stees liked to call routinely after meeting him in pennsylvania well during the trial rick had been called to testify He'd even been flown out for the occasion. However, the older gentleman really valued his privacy and he did not want to appear. He declined to testify at the last minute.
1: Nancy Lemke continued her search for Rick Rock even after Steese was convicted of murder. She finally got in contact with Rock by phone and she told him his phone records could prove that Steese had called him from Idaho. Rick agreed, but he said he'd already given the prosecution a copy of his phone records. Lemke was floored. So am I. Yeah. They had the phone records, the prosecution, they knew. Had the prosecution purposely hidden salient evidence in a death penalty murder case?
0: That would be a big deal. A very big deal. U.S. Supreme Court case Brady versus Maryland established the precedent that prosecutors must turn over any evidence favorable to the defense. Withholding any key evidence violates the defendant's right to a fair trial. Nancy Lemke filed a motion requesting the judge to grant a new trial and asking the judge to sanction the prosecution to prevent future misconduct.
1: By this time, said prosecution... Herndon William Kephart, and Douglas Herndon, they'd been promoted a few times. They were part of the DA's elite team, a new special victims unit, and the major violators unit. This was
0: 1998, by the way, and the Supreme Court denied Fred Steeze's appeal. Furthermore, the court maintained that no Brady violation had occurred. After all, the defense could have found the phone records on its own.
1: Could have. Did William Kephart or Douglas Herndon ever face any consequences for this?
0: Not really. Though in 2001, the Nevada Supreme Court justices rebuked Kephart in a misconduct ruling. But aside from him being briefly benched from trials, nothing else really happened to him. Another of his cases was overturned in 2008, also as a result of his misconduct. And in 2010, he campaigned to become a justice of the peace. And when he was elected to that office, Fred Stees had been in prison for almost 20 years.
1: Hmm. Also in 2010, however, an Abigail Goldman was appointed as an investigator for the Federal Public Defender's Office. In Las Vegas, the Steese case had stuck out to her as a rarity. She also believed that he was completely innocent. Goldman became determined to locate Fred Steese's long-lost brother, Robert.
0: And she found him in San Antonio. Robert, then 41, told her that he hadn't seen his brother since he was nine years old and Robert expressed zero desire to get involved in this case. But they had his address, so Fred Steese's lawyers now had an avenue through which to subpoena Robert.
1: Nancy Lemke also enlisted the help of federal public defender Ryan Norwood. Norwood had taken on the role of assisting impoverished prisoners who wished to sue the government for wrongful imprisonment. Norwood, using his legal capabilities was able to get custody of the prosecution's file, where he found some very startling information.
0: Firstly, there were field interrogation reports filed by the railroad police. These would be filed when they caught people illegally riding trains or trespassing in the railroad yard. This was Steeze's primary mode of travel. One report was for a Frederick LeBurke, In Salt Lake City on May 29th. And there were two more for Fred Lee Burke Jr. on May 31st in Cheyenne, Wyoming. This was solid proof that Fred Steese was out of state five days before the murder. Secondly, there was a copy of a National Crime Information Center report on Robert Steese, Fred's brother when an individual is stopped by the police the individual's name is run through the system this report showed that on may 25th june 1st and june 4th of 1992 texas state police had searched fred's brother robert in their system and in order for that search to have transpired robert would have had to have been stopped by police In Texas, this represented solid proof that Robert was still in Texas during the time that the prosecution had claimed that he was in Idaho impersonating Fred Steeves. It also meant that the prosecution knew this already at the time of the trial. Unbelievable. Gosh. Oh, a new hearing would begin for Fred In June 2011, thank God, the long and short of it was that Stees was able to take the first steps towards proving his innocence.
1: Yeah, and luckily he escaped the death penalty. I mean, these guys knew that he was innocent. I mean, they knew it and they're trying to give him the death penalty. It's just so fucked up.
0: We see this on paper. It's yeah, it's undeniable proof
1: there in the eighth judicial district a judge would issue an order regarding actual innocence, declaring publicly that Stice had not killed anyone. Quote, given everything additional that we now know, Judge Kadish said, I am finding it that it is more likely than not that no reasonable juror would have found him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt with that evidence. You think? (laughs) Yeah.
0: This ruling could facilitate consideration for complete exoneration. But in order for Fred Stees to be completely exonerated of his murder conviction, he would need to prove that the prosecution had acted unethically or failed to do their due diligence.
1: Ugh. Oh, Lord, don't you love governmental bureaucracy? When the system has someone, it just doesn't want to let them go.
0: And it has its hooks in Fred right Mm. now. Ryan Norwood, though, was sure that he could win this case for Stees. And he definitely wanted to take Keppert and Herndon's behavior to task. But if he did, Stees could still be stuck sitting in jail for years to come, waiting for the Supreme Court of Nevada to make their ruling. And then... Only if said ruling was found to be in Steve's favor would his case then be retried. And Fred might not even get bailed during any of this.
1: Two weeks later, Judge Kadish offered Ryan Norwood and Steve a new deal. She would give Stee's parole and drop all charges, asking only that he plead guilty to stealing the truck in Nevada. Oh, that's Steve. The prosecution argued back that the murder charge should stay on record. So, in turn, Judge Kadish offered an Alford plea.
0: The Alford plea lets a defendant assert innocence for the record. The defendant acknowledges that the state might have to keep the conviction on record despite the defendant's innocence. This was the fastest way to get Fred Stee set free. And after having been in jail for a total of 7,545 days, that's all that mattered to Fred.
1: The offered plea gets offered in a lot of really high-profile cases where the prosecution tries to save face, the most famous being the Memphis Three, where three teenagers were found guilty of incredibly heinous murders, pretty much based on the fact that they wore black listened to Metallica, and read Stephen King. There was a coerced confession in that case as well. We'll cover it someday, definitely, in one shape or another.
0: But Fred Sties was free, walking out of the courtroom after admitting his guilt in an Alfred putty.
1: One year later, Fred Sties, now age 50, applied to what he described as his dream job. He wanted to be a driver at a trucking company. Unfortunately, because of his felony conviction, he was rejected, despite having passed the written test for the job with flying colors. Even though his innocence had technically been proven, he was still applying to jobs with a murder conviction on his record.
0: And that just doesn't look good on paper. And Steve's technically free, struggled to find work to such an extent that for a time, he ended up homeless again. Unlike many of our stories here at Murder Coaster, though, this story does have a happier ending than that, one that demonstrates the true power of the written word.
1: Journalist Megan Rose published the details of the trial in an expose co-published by both Vanity Fair and ProPublica entitled Kafka in Vegas, a Murdered Circus Star, A Dubious Confession, and America's Prosecutional Misconduct Epidemic. That is a great name for an article.
0: Yeah, and it's a good article.
1: Right? So named, she says, because of how it captured the Byzantine nightmare Fred Sties had been put through with his wrongful conviction and over 21 years of legal hoops he had to jump through to prove his innocence.
0: Formerly assigned to cover issues related to the military, Megan Rose reports that she heard bits and pieces of Fred's story from a colleague, and she became fascinated by the story. She asked her editors for permission to divert her focus for this case, and she was given the go-ahead to investigate. Megan Rose's article earned the case renewed national attention. She writes, Prosecutors worked hard to keep it hidden, forcing him into an almost incomprehensible choice, risk freedom to fight for an uncertain exoneration that might take years or cop to a crime he didn't commit and walk away.
1: That's the Alfred play for you. You have to you have to admit guilt even though you didn't do it. It's so ridiculous. Thanks in large part to the investigative journalism of Megan Rose, Fred Steese was granted a full pardon by the Nevada Board of Pardons Commission in 2017. And today, Fred Steese is no longer a convicted felon. Yay! He told the Las Vegas Review Journal, "I'm a new man now. It's lifted a black cloud over me."
0: It gets better. How often do I get to say that on this show? It gets <laughs> Not better. Not often. Never. (laughs) In March of twenty twenty one, the Las Vegas judicial system approved a one point four million dollar settlement to compensate Fred Stees for his twenty-one years spent wrongfully behind bars. Attorney Lisa Resmussen helped him fight for this. She also supported him in the interim by lending him money for groceries or a phone bill here and there. And letting him shave in her office before job interviews.
1: By the time the settlement was granted, Steese was celebrating three years sober and had worked as both a successful handyman and a truck driver. When asked how he planned to spend the money, Fred reflected that he is so excited to ride his new dirt bike in the desert, spending time watching football, hunting, fishing, and buying a home with a garage And a new truck. I want to stay busy, he says. I'll probably just do stuff I like to do. You know, now that I don't have to worry about my rent or how I'm going to eat.
0: He certainly deserves to kick back now.
1: Yeah, it's a lot lot of time to spend in prison for a crime you didn't commit.
0: Yeah, I hope he's still enjoying himself. When asked to comment, Attorney General Aaron Ford said, while no amount of money can ever replace our freedom, Mr. Steese will be compensated for the years he lost.
1: Steese has also said he plans to help programs such as the Innocence Project and Hope for Prisoners.
0: And were you worrying about the poor poodles, dear listeners, yes. and fellow freaks? Yes, us too. So we checked. Fret not when news of the death reached Seoul's agent, Ava Williams. He said, we've lost Jerry. We certainly can't lose the dogs, too. And he found them a home at the Circus Corona in the Midwest.
1: But Jerry's friend, Kenny Dodd, reports that Mae West won't wiggle like she used to. And Miranda's fruit keeps slipping from her head. They miss poor Gerard terribly, he says. We all do.
0: And... That's going to do it for Murder Coaster this week, fellow freaks. We hope you enjoyed our tale of the hobo and the poodle king. Thanks so much for listening.
1: And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at Podcast at gmail.com. That's Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.